Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to the final episode of 2019. I cannot believe that this year is already coming to a close. And on top of that, we are closing out the decade. I don't know about you, but it seems like the time is just flying by nowadays. And the older I get, the faster it seems to go. So I'm curious, are you setting any goals for 2020 or even the next decade? Uh, I'm starting to plan out the different things that I would like to achieve over the next 10 years. And I, I have some big dreams. So I'm excited for the next 10 years, and I hope you are as well. And if you feel like sharing, go ahead and go to summitforwellness.com slash 98 and go down to the comments and share what it is that you are hoping to achieve in the next few years. At the end of the year, I always like to look back and see what we've been able to accomplish with the podcast and who is in our top five. So for our podcast this year, we have brought on 30 different guests. And in the span of one year, we have doubled our audience, which is awesome. So the longer that this podcast has been on, the more it has grown. And it's great to see that people are tuning in and listening because uh, this is all stuff that we do completely for free and it's for the benefit of you as a listener so that you can have access to different health information. So in this episode, we will be sharing the top five podcast episodes from 2019, and this is based off of the total download numbers within the first month of release. That way, every single episode has the same chance to make it in the top five. So let's dive right into our top five podcast episodes of 2019. Number five. Okay, coming in at number five, we have... Episode 86, Enhance Your Performance Nutrition with Jeff LeCoven. And in this episode, we talk all about how to optimize your performance via your diet. And while many people think of performance as something that would have to do with athletics, this can be performance in the office. It can be how you perform running a company. It can be how you perform as a parent. There's a lot of different aspects to performance. So here is a little clip from the episode talking all about what performance nutrition actually looks like. So we're talking a lot about people that are trying to enhance their uh, performance, whether it's on the field, on the court. Um, a lot of times I hear of uh, a lot of principles that people use for athletics can also cross over into like high level CEOs or executives because they're also kind of playing an upper level game. Do you work with that at all? Sure. I do as well. I do have some CEOs and, and more like heads of corporations that come in and, and um, I mean, for the most part, they're, they're trying to get healthy. They're trying to get well. And, um, but you know, they're trying to perform too. So like I look at my performance, also performance in life and performance in health and how to optimize those things, which from a holistic perspective would encompass their body, um, their biochemistry and their mental health. Right. Yeah. And being the head of a, a large company or any type of company, their head has to be in the right place to be able to think and be able to grow the business the way that it needs to grow. 
Um, so let's dive into a little bit the differences for performance, because, um, you know, if we're thinking about the energy requirements of a sport versus energy requirements of someone trying to lose weight, and in some sports, people are losing weight in order to be uh, ready for their sport. I'm thinking like wrestlers or fighters, boxers, anything like that. Uh, can you break down what, how do you start to change the nutritional uh program for them to be able to make sure that they have the energy that they need to perform at the level that they need to perform. So, so basically what I do is I'll figure out there, um, I go through a pie chart to show them what, what, what makes up metabolism. Okay. So if you, if you were to draw a circle and to cut it in, and to, um, divide it into thirds. So two thirds are about 60% is considered to be, or, or thought to be due to your resting metabolic rate your RMR or your BMR, people say sometimes. So basically, these, these are the, um, this is what it takes to keep you alive and run your processes, like your different systems, your nervous system, your brain, so on, like your circulatory system, endocrine system. And so it's based on your your gender, your height, your weight, your age, um, and um, lean body mass as well. So some of these things are kind of like uh, set in stone. We can't change. We can increase our lean body mass right through resistance training so i kind of gently point that out to an individual that it's important to have more lean body mass because it's going to make you more metabolically active at rest meaning that at rest doing nothing you're going to burn more calories just by having more muscle so then we have uh the next 30 percent which is um tdee or total daily energy activity oh sorry total daily energy expenditure and um, that's composed of your exercise right? And what happens after your exercise. So we know that if you do, for example, uh, high intensity interval training, you have what's called the epoch effect or excess post um, oxygen consumption that occurs after you exercise where you're actually burning calories for the next 48 to 72 hours just by doing this intense exercise. So imagine like you're pushing on the accelerator of your car, you've got this burning effect and then it slowly releases, but you're still burning gas as it's releasing. Same kind of thing with this, um, with EPOC or high intensity interval training. Resistance training has a similar metabolic effect. Generally steady state type of exercise where you're sitting doing cardio um, in the fat burning zone, so to speak, for like 45 minutes or so, um, it's gonna burn some calories, but it's really in inefficient. You know, somebody could go in there and do 45 minutes, maybe burn four, four, 400 calories, something like that, um, steady state activity, and then go to Starbucks and drink a frappe macchino and uh, drink it all back in a couple of minutes, right? So, it, and a lot of people have this this mental idea that I, I've earned it. I'm gonna, you know, this idea of like I, I went to the gym so I can have this or have that, and that really is um, it's counterproductive and self sabotaging. So also part of this, of this energy expenditure is something called NEAT. NEAT stands for um, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's actually been thought to be even more of a part for weight management. So things like fidgeting, um, just taking a little bit extra time to walk to get somewhere, um, standing up a little bit more. We stand in our clinic most of the time. And so uh, a lot of times people will uh, substitute activities 
Um, like they'll do the exercise, for example, and then they won't do anything else for the rest of the day. I've done my exercise, right? And that's not good. So it's important to incorporate NEAT as well. So I incorporate people to get like uh, maybe a fitness monitor, like a Fitbit or something like that, and, and aim for seven to uh, 7,000 to 10,000 steps a day. And that goes a long way for those individuals who are trying to, to lose weight. And the last 10% is the thermic effect of food. So um, when we're looking at um, the thermic effect of food, we're looking at different macronutrients. So that's carbohydrates, proteins, and fats have uh, an energy cost in their breakdown. So whereas uh, 100 calories of Captain Crunch might have the same value as 100 calories of a piece of steak, the way your, your body metabolizes these foods is a lot different. There's an energy cost in breaking down that 100 calories of steak. So it's not actually going to translate when it's stored, if it is stored, as 100 calories. So, so you know, taking it all again to summarize, you've got um, you've got your resting metabolic rate, you've got um, total daily energy expenditure, and you've got the thermic effect of food, and that makes up your um, you know your metabolism. So once we can determine these things, and there's a lot of online calculators that are like, especially for um, they use um, equations. So like Harris Benedict equation is really popular, a Cunningham equation. So somebody will come in, for example, and I'll plug in their height, their weight, their age, and um, it'll spit out a number that is a rough, roughly their um, their resting metabolic rate. And then we can also um, use a calculator to figure out their total daily energy expenditure based on what they're performing in a day with their activity. And, um, and then that can give us a rough idea of where, how many calories they're burning in a day. And now if they want to gain weight, then we're going to add maybe three to 500 calories in surplus. If they want to lose weight, we're going to go the other direction. Um, so it's like a teeter-totter of energy balance. So to check out that episode, you can go to summitforwellness.com slash 86, and that will take you right to the show notes for that show. You can also see all of the different topics that we talk about in the show notes and any resources that we mentioned as well. Number four. Coming in at the number four spot, we have episode 93, Fix the Gut to Fix the Brain with Dr. Rob Silverman. And in this episode, we talk all about what happens when there is dysfunction going on in the gut or the digestive tract, and how that can influence how well your brain is functioning. So in this clip that I will share from that episode, Dr. Silverman talks about how intestinal permeability or leaky gut occurs and what we can do about it. So now going back to the intestinal intestinal permeability that you were talking about, uh, can you talk about how the gut lining is supposed to uh, react within the body and then what different things cause uh, the uh, gut lining to start to expand and allow molecules to go through it. Yeah, the breaks. So we'll we'll call it our, just so you know, our gut lining is semi, what we call semi permeable. So the gut lining refers to the large and the small intestine. Now the small intestine has really been improperly named. The small intestine is actually ninety to ninety five percent of the length of our intestinal tract. What it's supposed to occur in our small intestine is it's supposed to be able to absorb digested food, water, and nutrients, and digest it and pull it from our gut into our bloodstream so we get water, nutrients, and energy. Unfortunately, when it becomes too permeable, or the term we like to use is leaky, so now we have leaky gut, some specific things pass through the lining that shouldn't, like a large undigested food particle. 
some bacteria, viruses, yeast, those things pass. And when they pass and go into our bloodstream, they stimulate our immune system to attack it. And that starts the cascade of inflammation. Our large intestine, which is quite small, is supposed to kill bacteria. Any problems in the large intestine are usually like ulcerative colitis, IBD, IBS, celiac. And so uh, when food is passing through the gut lining and into the system, what happens with the immune system when that happens? Well, interesting when you, you, know, you asked about the immune system getting turned on. So our immune system in our body is interesting in that it has two switches. Switch number one says on. Switch number two says off. Off is it won't turn on if it thinks that what just passed the gut is self, meaning it's supposed to be there and it's seen it before, like a collagen, like a digested food particle. But when something passes the gut that the immune system detects and says shouldn't be there, like certain bacteria, the immune system gets turned on, it attacks it, it sends what we call B and T cells, not trying to get too technical. And when it attacks it, it causes a allergic or a localized systemic inflammatory reaction. If it continues, it then flows through your bloodstream and you get systemic inflammation. And then the highest level of 35,000 of you, kind of like what I'm looking at at the mountain, you know, you should definitely show everybody that picture of that mountain before there, especially for like me, a guy afraid of heights. That mountainous view is when it attacks, your immune system attacks it's this antigen, it then goes on and possibly starts attacking joints. And we call that autoimmunity. So a lot of people are talking about food sensitivities and they're getting these uh, IgG tests done that show all yeah. these uh, different indications of foods that they might have issues with. When someone has uh, a gut lining issues and all these different foods are showing up on a test, is that a pretty good indicator that there's an issue with the gut lining or what would be the best way to um, test for that? Well, I, IgG is a great term, immunoglobins. IgG is the most common immunoglobin. 75% of your immunoglobins are IgG, and they do imply chronic inflammation. As an FYI, IgG is the only one that passes the placenta. Now, yeah, it's crazy, right? 75% of IgGs, are, you know, 75% of immunoglobins are IgG, so we're made for chronic inflammation. So just looking at that from a musculoskeletal approach, that poses an issue. And that's why you and I want to combine that mechanical and biochemical because we're never going to get the mechanical body uh, outcomes that we want if we don't address the biochemical. Segwaying back in once again to the IgG, there are tests that I like to use. So I'll use a Cyrex test for one. So the array two is the one that I usually, that's the one that I hang my hat on a lot. So it'll test for different markers like LPS, which is an endotoxin, which implies a leaky gut. Occludin uh, and zonulin will imply that the tight junctions are open and actomyosin will talk about damage at the true gut lining, but they mix it with antibodies. So testing these antibodies are a critical element. You don't have to take that one at the gut or the brain lining. You can just ask for regular blood tests. Again, a great question. IgG chronic, IgM, um, uh, wow, early activation, and IgA reactivation. So there are ways to determine with these antibodies. There are also some others, if I can throw them out to you, since we're, you know, I know you're a PT and we do all musculoskeletal interleukins. Interleukin 1, interleukin 6, and interleukin 8 
or early signs that we can test for cytokines and biochemical tests to see if people have susceptibility to lower back pain. That little clip was packed full of information, and that honestly is just a little tiny piece from that episode. And we didn't even get to the brain part yet just in that clip. So when you go to listen to that episode, be prepared to have your mind blown because there's a lot of great information. And you can access that episode at summitforwellness.com slash 93. Number three. Coming in at number three is episode 88, Optimize Your Recovery in Sports with Lenny Parasino, who Lenny also holds a all-time downloaded episode record from episode 12. So he has made it back into the top five episodes for this year. In this episode, we talk all about how to recover faster in sports, especially when you have multiple uh, events going on in one day. So uh, he dives into a lot of the different processes they're using with professional sports and how you can even apply that to your everyday usage to enhance your own recovery from, say, a workout or a running event or anything that you enjoy doing as well. So in this clip that I'm going to share, Lenny talks us through a little protocol that he developed for just one person that he works with, but it shows a complexity how programs can be built for people. So let's talk about developing a plan a little bit. So once you do figure out their loading capacity and their movement efficiency, then how do you start determining what type of recovery protocol they should have? Um, And can you talk about some of those different uh, tools that you mentioned earlier, like the Normatec and vibration plates and what those can be used for? Yeah, it's kind of a loaded question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because it really is individual. I mean, I don't really have a protocol. Um, let's see, I'm teaching a course here. Um, I'm trying to think, I did a case study just to show people how to utilize the system that we teach. So our system is really simple. We have to first come up with the client's key objective. Like why are they coming in to see us? You know, I don't want to sound conceited or, you know, like, we're better than anyone else, but we have a very interesting clinic. This is outside of the MBA. We have a cash-based practice that every one of the clinicians is really busy. It's not insurance-based, it's cash-based, and people aren't going to keep paying cash unless you're getting results. So it's very results-oriented. And so I urge practitioners to read the book, Measure What Matters. And if you're a movement practitioner, why would you read a book like that? This is a book that Google was built on, Bill Gates Foundation was built on, and it deals with what's called OKRs, objective key results. So you come up with the objective, and then you come up with ways to measure if that objective is being met, okay? So I utilize that system in our system because it keeps us true. It keeps us interacting with the client which is what I call the platinum rule. You ever hear the golden rule? Do yeah. to others the way you want done to you. You ever hear that? It's really yep. selfish. Think about it. Do to others the way you want done to you is very selfish. The platinum rule is do to others what they want done to them. So our system deals with the platinum rule. It's like, why are they coming in to see us? What's the main objective? Now, what are we going to do 
technique-wise, strategy-wise, to measure if we're meeting that. So I had this lady come to me. She's a sharp lady, very, very active, high-level soccer player as a kid, went to college, became a doctor of dermatology. Her main reason why she came to me is she would love to run again, but she's starting to give up. Because three years ago, she had a partial, it was confirmed via MRI, partial hamstring tear, the bicep femoris, up by its origin. And this is three years ago. That's the key part of the story. And every time she runs now or walks fast, briskly, it starts to agitate her. So she's given up. But every once in a while, it still agitates without doing fast walking or running. But she would love to get back into running. So to your question, like, how did I build a program for her? Well, the first thing I did in our system, we have three categories. We have global loading, local loading, and manual loading. So we don't call it any fancy name like ART or FRC and all these different names that are out there. That's great that people want their proprietary names and all that. It's fine. But at the end of the day, it's loading. Let's call a spade a spade. It's loading. That's why in our classes, I'm like, take this information and make it your own. Put Brian on top of it. I don't care. Because we're not going to have initials by your name, say an FSTT. We just had to put a placeholder name in it. And that's how we get CEUs. You got to call it something. So we have global loading, we have local loading, we have manual. So globally, I decided to walk her because that's what she did when she came in. So she walked. She doesn't feel anything when she walks. So I decided to tweak the walk, walk with a longer stride. Ooh, she gets a little bit of a hint on the upper posterior aspect of her hamstring on the right side. Interesting. Okay, let's go back to normal stride, but let's go normal stride lengthwise, distance-wise, right to left foot, faster. She doesn't feel it faster in that shorter stride. She just feels it longer stride. I said, okay, that was enough information from a global perspective. Now, locally, let's do an excursion. Let's take the pelvic bone, move it over the femur bone in all dimensions. And I always use side that's non-agitated first as a litmus test to the side that's agitated. So it's you versus you and not a normative piece out of a book, right? Or what people call normative data. I don't care about that. I care about the person, the platinum rule. So we go ahead and we go through her left side excursions, proximal and distal, so pelvis and femur, multi-angular, she feels good. She actually has really good tension integrity. She's strong. And I was like, wow, that, that's pretty impressive. Not surprising because she was a high-level soccer player. Um, and she's still very, very active as a professional. And now uh, we do the right side. And sure enough, there were certain planes that she was very successful in. Um, and then there was a couple she was not. So then we went to manual loading. Um, I did some stuff standing with manual load, but then I went to the table. So I took her out of the field of gravity uh, with respect to standing and compression. Obviously, we're always in gravity, but we changed the position relative to it. And I searched for tension integrity, a comparative analysis. And sure enough, there was inhibition of her hamstrings on the right side. And then I did a passive palpatory verification, and there was density and soreness. So her sensation was, wow, it's very sore. I compared it to the other side. So see how I'm taking you through a process where I gathered information. So then I continued with this passive compression and friction to the tissue to see if I couldn't desensitize it. Then 
we did some tension integrity testing. So I had her contract very lightly, not strong, abrupt contractions, but lightly to facilitate that region. We'll call it the hamstrings geographically. Then we brought her back up, had her do the excursions. Then we finished with what we started with, walking. The whole goal, so you see how I did everything in the beginning at the end. The whole goal was everything is a test and everything is a treatment. Okay, so then she said, wow, I feel like it's lighter now and I don't feel that agitation now. And I said, good, what this tells me is you have a viscoelasticity problem because the only thing a human hand can change and what you can change that quickly in one session is the viscoelasticity. We can't change the cellular metabolism to any significant level. We can't change the mechanics of the fibers that quickly, only the way they behave within their solution called an extracellular matrix or what we'll call a brown substance. So now what we have to do is we have to continue this. So here's what I'd like you to do. I know you love spin class, but I'd rather have you not do spin class for two weeks because of the compression and the friction. Instead, let's get out and walk because you do love to run. It is outdoors and it's great for the mind. She goes, yeah, I'm cool with that, no problem. I said, now what I'm gonna have you do is wear a compression band around the hamstring, the upper hamstring area. So your readers or your listeners might be familiar with BFR training, blood flow restriction training. It's very, very popular. There's a lot of good hardcore science, but one of the recent studies came out and they're starting to see more and more of this uh, in the literature is you don't have to use full occlusion to get the same metabolic benefits. You can use less intense compression to get similar metabolic benefits. In fact, they did studies with 70-year-olds putting compression around the upper thigh, going for walks, and they showed metabolic changes, which is fascinating because we didn't have to run the risk of full occlusion and DVTs and things like that. So we did that with her, and it works great for adductor-type strains and hamstring strains and even quad strains. So I put that only on the right side, and I had her walk, showed her different tweaks to the walk, like faster speed, longer stride. I said, that is going to be your rehab. Um, in addition to offloading using, um, I mean, eliminating the bike, because I felt like the compression on the area where she's sitting on the seat and the repetitive nature of it was not going to help the viscoelasticity. And then I gave her excursions to do. In addition with the walking, I wanted her to take intermittent breaks, do the excursion, take a rest for like three minutes to rehydrate the system. Uh, I'm talking about the tissue system. And I give the analogy of a big wet sponge, like a car sponge is full of water. You're pushing on it and you're pushing on it. That water seeping out. If you keep pushing on it, pushing on it, the sponge is going to dry out. So all you got to do is take a break from your walk, let the water rehydrate back in there. And that's analogies. Uh, that a lot of the experts use that I've been um, lucky enough to hear. So it works really well. It's a good visual. And that's what we're trying to do is rehydrate, refresh the fluid system. And she's been doing great. And the key is, what are we getting closer to? Her, her, goal. her goal. Yeah. She really wants, and that's what I said to her. Like, what do you really want? Let's say if we had a magic wand in here and we could take all this stuff away. What would you do? She's like, I want to run. So that's what I'm going to focus on. And it just so happened after I assessed her, 
and then reassessed her. I'm like, you know what? I can give her, wow, I can give her walking. That's a lot closer to running than being inside in a spin class, which she admittedly didn't really like. She just likes the intensity of the exercise, but she'd much rather be outside. So that's an example of a program. Now, every single person that comes to me is going to get a different program. I was lucky enough to be able to give her something outdoors and very global, or some people I have to give them local. Lenny is always a blast to have on the show. And if you want to listen to that episode, it is episode 88 at summitforwellness.com slash 88. Number two. We are coming down to the wire here with the final two episodes. And between the first place and second place was only a couple of downloads. So that's how close it was. So coming in at number two, we have episode 85, Making Informed Supplement Choices with Kate Mahoney. And in that episode, we talk about the supplement industry and how not all supplements are created equally. I'm sure you've been to the grocery store and you've probably seen a lot of different options out there. And sometimes you might choose the cheapest option that you can find. In this episode, we talk about what those cheaper options might be made of or just supplements in general because price doesn't always indicate quality. So here is a little snippet from that episode. Let's take a look a little bit at uh, supplements. So one of the key areas that uh, you want to look at is the manufacturing practices. So can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, man. So this is such a deceptively important subject. And the reason why is because I kind of like to say that manufacturing of practices equates to or is also known as welcome to the world of excipients. So a lot of people are not familiar with that word, so I'm going to explain it a little bit. An excipient can be generally one of three things. So it can be used as a filler to add bulk to a product because sometimes there are supplements or nutrients that we're taking in such minute quantities that if we were to actually just be taking the nutrient by itself, it would be about the size of a grain of sand. So companies will add bulk to a product in order for there to actually be a tablet that someone is taking. And that's what we're looking at when we talk about microgram amounts is very, very tiny amounts of nutrients. And a lot of companies will do that so that people feel like they're getting their money's worth. But there are also companies that do that because it's much easier for people to be able to work with a tablet than it is to like work with a grain of sand. (laughs) So that's one of the uses is as a filler. Another use of excipients is as a binder. So these are ingredients that are added to a product that bind the ingredients together to form a tablet. And the very last most common use of an excipient is as a flow agent. Now these are ingredients or fillers or excipients that are used in manufacturing processes to keep product from clogging the manufacturing equipment so it doesn't need to be cleaned as often. And let me tell you, most of the flow agents that are used are some of the things that are the most harmful. 
Now, the reason why companies do that is because, hmm, how can I say this tactfully? So there are certain companies that are very much in the supplement industry for profit. And the way that you can tell what those companies look like is they make everything. I mean, if, if it is a supplement that is on the market, they will have a product of that supplement. They have a really wide umbrella. Most of those companies, though, that are making everything, and this is something we're going to touch on a little bit more next, is they don't necessarily have the highest raw material quality standards, for one thing. But for another thing, they're using their manufacturing equipment over and over so quickly that they're adding a lot of flow agents to their product to make sure that they don't have to clean their equipment as quickly in between processing. Um, I mean, there's the reasons for flow agents, let's just say, in my opinion, they're not very ethical. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the common excipients that you're going to find in supplements. One of them is going to be magnesium stearate. Now, one of the things about magnesium stearate is that it is required to have an MSDS. That is a material safety data sheet on that product. Are there magnesium steroids that are out there that are actually less harmful to the body? Yes. And you need to contact a supplement company directly if they use magnesium steroid in their products to find out the sourcing for that. And if they are an ethical company, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, they will have absolutely no problem providing you with the information on where and how they are sourcing their magnesium stearate. Like, what is the raw material that it is derived from? Another one is silicone dioxide, which also has an MSDS report. Now, the thing about silicone dioxide is that it's, it's actually a little bit deceptive because it's not, silicone dioxide is different than silica or silicia, which is actually really finely ground quartz crystals. Silicone is something that is known to have a lot of um, counterindications when it comes to internal use, and that's why it has the MSDS report. So there are some very finite spellings having to do with the different ingredients and just doing your research and being a conscientious consumer can make a huge difference for you as far as making informed choices as a consumer. So another one is going to be cellulose and a lot of times vegetarian capsules are made out of cellulose and I want to talk about that really quickly because that is commonly derived from corn fiber, and currently 89% of the corn that is being grown in the United States, and this is information that I got off of the USDS, um, I'm sorry, USDA website, is that 89% of the corn currently being grown is GMO. So that means wow. if you are taking supplements in a vegetarian capsule and you have not done your due diligence to contact the company and find out and make sure that they are verifying 
that their vegetarian capsules are non-GMO, you're probably inadvertently consuming GMOs. Hmm. And the very last one that I wanted to touch on is dextrins. And the dextrins are primarily derived from corn and potato. The reason why that's really important is because there are some people who are actually sensitive to the nightshade family. And we also now have GMO potatoes too, not just corn. Now, we have to keep in mind that a big reason why these products have been genetically modified is so that they can withstand extraordinarily high levels of man-made chemicals like the herbicides and the pesticides. That is the biggest reason why they're being genetically modified. And that means that the raw material is going to have those high levels of man-made chemicals in them. And last but not least, it's also important to note that dextrins can additionally be derived from wheat. So if you're wheat sensitive or celiac, that can be something to be aware of. And just an example of what dextrins are, those would be things like dextrose or maltodextrin or things like that. And when you're talking about magnesium stearate, <laughs> is that the same form as magnesium as what you would take in like a magnesium pill or is that different? Well, it should not be. <laughs> so that gets into, um, that's something that we're going to be talking about a little bit more later on when we talk about nutrient bioavailability. So there are different forms of nutrients, and some of them are going to be better utilized by the body or what's known as more bioavailable to the body. Magnesium stearate and magnesium oxide are a couple forms that are not bioavailable to the body. It is not a form of magnesium that the body can utilize. And if you do research on that topic, you'll be able to find out why and how on a chemical and molecular level because of what is combined with the magnesium, why the body can't break it down, why it can't utilize it, why it's not usable by the body. So figuring out what forms are going to be most usable and what forms are cleanest is really, really important. That episode was fantastic, and we got absolutely amazing compliments on the episode. We even have a bunch of practitioners that listen in on the show that learned quite a bit. So if you want to listen to that episode, go to summitforwellness.com slash 85. Number one. Okay, here it is, the moment you've all been waiting for. This guest placed second last year in our top five and this year climbed her way to number one it is from episode 76 how to succeed with intermittent fasting with cynthia thurlow and just like the title we talk all about intermittent fasting she is even using intermittent fasting in order to help gain weight after a health issue that she ran into. And so she talks about how you can manipulate intermittent fasting depending on the goals that you want to achieve. So here's a little clip from that episode. And so what are the physiological uh, aspects of intermittent mm -hmm. fasting? What does it do for the body? Why is it important to shorten the window of time that we feed and increase the amount of time that the body's resting from ingesting food? 
It's a great question. And so fasting really is something that's been around since ancestral times. It's it's hot right now because I think there's a lot of research dollars being pushed into understanding it better. But from a physiologic perspective, I mean, fat loss is what everyone focuses on, but there's there's a term called autophagy. And so autophagy is a spring cleaning of the cells. And the only time that your body can get rid of these diseased, dysfunctional cells is when you're fasted. You know, we've been conditioned in our society that we need to be eating 24 hours a day. We need to be snacking. We need to be constantly eating. We need mini meals. I can't tell you how destructive that mindset is. That is what is conditioned us to believe that we're supposed to be snacking and eating all day long. It doesn't give digestion a break. It doesn't make our digestion efficient. It largely creates a system uh, where we are, we're going to end up being insulin resistant because we're constantly flooded with food. And you know, it, it ultimately benefits the food industry. You know, we do much better. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and my mother was a first-generation American. So for her, it was all about, you know, you ate breakfast, you ate lunch, and you ate dinner. There was no snacking. And if you didn't eat a meal, you didn't have another meal to the next meal. And that's just how things were. And yet, you know, my boys are being raised in a culture largely where kids are getting crap all day long. You know, they have to have, you know, they need it after they played a football game for 30 minutes. They need it after every swim meet. Um, and it's not healthy food. So for so many people, the whole concept of fasting will kind of tap into um, ensuring that they're they're becoming fat burners. So they're going to be more fuel efficient, meaning that they don't get hungry every two to three hours. Their you know their satiety is going to be maintained. In fact, the longer you do intermittent fasting, the more satiated you are. You don't feel like you're thinking about food as soon as you hit your you know your feet hit the floor in the morning. But there's also there are a lot of other physiological benefits, including things like better biomarkers. So your blood pressure, your blood sugar, lowered insulin levels overall improve cognitive functioning. So you're much more clear cognitively. Like I know when I'm fasting in the morning, like today I didn't break my fast until gosh probably 11:30. And I, you know, I, I did some sprints this morning. I'm, compl- I feel completely fantastic. And so I encourage people to really think about, you know, what are you, what are you aiming for? We know that it reduces your risk of, um, you know, of brain issues, including um, Alzheimer's dementia, which is considered to be type three diabetes. We know it, it helps stimulate growth hormone when you're fasting, and growth hormone is what helps with building lean muscle. And for many people that aren't getting good quality sleep. Uh, fasting can be really helpful. The most, a lot of growth hormone is secreted at night in our brains. That's when our brains are actually doing the most work. So lots and lots of physiological benefits. And then, you know, people just feel like they're able to maintain, you know, like I mentioned before, I have some clients who don't like doing elimination diets and all they do is stick to a strict feeding window and all of a sudden they're losing weight. And it's because their bodies are having time to process what they're eating. Um, their bodies are getting a little bit hungry. And so, they will shift into this fat burning mode and, and they'll, they'll use glycogen um, to keep your blood sugar stable, which is, which is where we're, how we are supposed to function physiologically. And so to me, it's just, it's the science behind it makes sense. And I just think with the escalating rates of obesity and diabetes in this country, we really have to make some changes and, and short-term pain um, is worth the long-term goals. So you know, we don't need to eat breakfast. And that was kind of how I started my TEDx was, what if I told you that breakfast is not the most important meal of the day? And there was like a hush over the crowd because we've been conditioned to believe that we need to have breakfast and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And we need to eat a, a primarily grain and gluten laden meal first thing in the morning. And that couldn't be farther from the truth of how our bodies are supposed to work. 
um, physiologically. Yeah, you you have to have your oatmeal and cereal in the morning. Well, no thanks. <laughs> um, so with breakfast, actually, uh, because the term breakfast is breaking your fast. Mm -hmm. Now, was breaking your fast supposed to be the fasting just while you're sleeping? Or back in history, was that a longer fast? I think it was a longer fast because if you look at, you know, ancestral eating, um, it was feast or famine, literally. It's like, what did you hunt that day and what did you bring home? And so some days you might you might kill a antelope and you bring that home and you eat, you know, eat heartily. And then the next day you've got tubers, you know, you have plants. Um, so our bodies are meant to have these periods of time where we are not consuming as much food. Unfortunately, what it's turned into um, and a really great book called Salt, Sugar, Fat, um, which is an expose on the processed food industry. When you start looking at uh, what has happened and transpired over the last 50 years, I mean, it's it's horrifying, in my opinion. I think that um, even healthcare providers were not doing enough to educate our patients about how to eat from a nutritional standpoint. And I think that is really to our detriment um, health-wise. And it doesn't set a good, you know, doesn't set a good tone for future generations. I mean, I look at my boys who are super athletic and they're smart and they're really um, fit. And, you know, most of their friends are the same way, but there are plenty of other events I go to. And I just, it, it breaks my heart because if our children are obese, um, the likelihood that they will continue having, struggling with obesity into their adult years is greatly um, heightened. And, you know, it's, you know, and the other thing we learn about Pottinger's cats as NTPs and NTCs. And so, you know, diseased adults breed, you know, kids that are going to be more susceptible to the same diseases and disorders that they're suffering from. So it's it's this domino effect that we really have to be um, very mindful of. And, and I can't, I can't say it strongly enough, something needs to change, you know, otherwise, we are going to end up being a generation that um, will have a really poor life expectancy, and poor quality of life. And, and, you know, getting back to when you were asking me about my hospitalization, the one thing I heard over and over again from not only the physicians that were caring for me, but the nurses was, how could this happen? You're one of the healthiest people I know. And so the point is, people that are healthy can get sick. But the reason why I got out of the hospital and was alive and I recovered so quickly was my quality of health before I got sick. And so I would encourage everyone, you know, even though I'm in my 40s, um, my quality of life is very important to me. And if there are things that you can do that are easy and simple and uncomplicated to, you know, improve your quality of life, I'm a huge proponent of that. Um, obviously, there are people who shouldn't do intermittent fasting, but the vast majority of us can really benefit from eating less food and fasting longer. Congratulations again, Cynthia, for being the top downloaded episode of 2019. This episode was fantastic. We had a ton of great feedback and a lot of listeners and, um, it, it was just an overall great episode. So make sure you go over to summitforwellness.com slash 76 to listen to that episode. Okay, we will be taking a break for a couple weeks so that we can just kind of relax after all the uh, podcast episodes that we released last year. But we will be coming back in a couple weeks with episode 99 with Christina Tidwell, where we will be talking about autoimmunity and gut health. So until then, keep climbing to the peak of your health.